You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt for another week. We've got a great show to get this week started for you. We're going to be talking political denials in just a moment, but first, it's time for our columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, I'm joined by Anoush Chikelian, British ed- Britain editor of the New Statesman. Hello, Anoush. Hello. And Jimmy McLaughlin, former advisor to Number 10 and host of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future podcast. Morning, Jimmy. Morning, Patrick. How are you, Jimmy? I'm very well, thank you. You? Uh, very well. You know, I hope uh, your jobs of the future, I really hope one day we don't have to work in August. But there you go. Uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, Anoush, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, neither of you, for taking holiday this week. Uh, <laughs> it's a great help. Uh, right, and the Tories aren't on holiday either. Number 10 certainly aren't on holiday. Uh, the government want to talk about health this week. Messages urging people to quit smoking uh, could be added to the inside of cigarette packs under draft proposals by the government. Obviously, Steve Barkley has been out and about this morning talking about cancer targets. Uh, we've got the backdrop of doctor strikes as well. You know, Jimmy, let's start with you. When you were working in number 10, did you... Obviously, you know, the grid, the all-powerful number 10 grid determines everything the government talks about in public. But is it a new thing that number 10 will come out and say, this week we're talking about X and designate something in advance as X week and be so public about, you know, in showing their working? Um, yeah, I was thinking that this morning, actually, Patrick. I don't think it ever was quite as uh, clear and upfront as that. But actually, I, I think it worked reasonably well, particularly in the summer months, to do this um, and to have lots of things stacked up. And it works well in terms of departments being ready and having lots of different announcements and a real kind of focus from everyone in number 10 as well to kind of support that department in what they're doing. So I, I actually think it, it works quite well. And I think it probably will be something that we see much more of in the run-up to a general election because that's when the grid gets even more critical in terms of announcements. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I find myself, I was writing a piece about um, the asylum crisis recently. I found myself writing the sentence, it's small boats week, and I then had to delete it because obviously that means absolutely nothing to readers. And I do think that, you know, that way that we talk about politics sometimes and, you know, the, the process of it, what's going on inside number 10, sometimes that can be enlightening, but sometimes it can be just a completely opaque for people who just want to know what's going on. And also, there's an extent to which, I'd be interested to know what you both think about this. Obviously, what the government says matters. What Number 10 or the Prime Minister or Ministers choose to talk about matters. But there is also a sense that, you know, the government is basically saying, jump, and we all say, how high? When actually, you know, actually the NHS week is slightly different because clearly this is something people really, really, really care about. And we have the backdrop of doctor strikes. But it's it's interesting, Jimmy, it's a reminder of... uh, of just how, you know, just how powerful number 10 is in setting the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be something that we discuss all week, like small boats last week. That was what dominated the conversation um, so much in the kind of national consciousness. So I think it's, um, I think it's quite powerful to be doing it. I think you're right, though, in terms of it, you know, it is very processy, some of this, and we do get a bit kind of, um, you know, we can wrap ourselves up in knots slightly with all the various process stories. And there are lots of people in the country that won't necessarily tune into the media on on a daily basis. So actually having a week-long dedication to something, I think, works pretty well. It's interesting, Anoush. I'm looking at the TV screen now, uh, looking at BBC News and seeing the headline, most England cancer's targets set to be scrapped. Obviously, there's Steve Barclay and NHS leaders have 
a story to tell about why they're doing this and how they're confident that it will result in better care for people. But do you think people will see Doctors on Strike, see a headline like that, and they won't necessarily think, oh, the government's got a grip on this. They might think, oh, God, you know, I already thought the NHS was in pretty bad nick. That that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, just as the top line, most England cancer targets set to be scrapped, I think would sound negative to the sort of casual observer because it sounds like they're doing down the standards of the NHS rather than trying to come up with a new way that might help cancer patients uh, get treatment sooner, which is what they're trying to do. Mm. But that sort of comes down into paragraph three, doesn't it? Um, and yeah, if, you, you, if, re- you read it and you think, oh, yeah. right, OK, that's that actually sounds quite encouraging. But then a lot of people aren't reading to, to paragraph three of a story in the Times. Yeah, exactly. Actually, sorry, everybody's reading to paragraph three of a story in the Times. <laughs> yeah, talking about a different paper here, Yeah, of exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, most people will have had an experience with the NHS recently where they've had to wait longer than they expected. Even just getting a GP appointment takes a long time now. And so just seeing headlines like like this suggests, I think, that the government is trying to wriggle out of uh, the standards it's setting itself rather than find a new, better way for patients. Uh, what do you think, Jimmy? Well, I think it's true what you were saying, actually, about the government does set the agenda for these things. But a lot of what's being discussed in Health Week, partly, is people being able to take more responsibility for their own health. And how Mm. can the government do that? And I think that's quite important, because I think whilst the headlines, you know, can look quite negative, as you were saying, around sort of uh, cancer and so on, there is a real challenge that we have like partly with the economy, um, but also with the health of the nation, is that we are almost in a kind of post-war status after COVID. And I sometimes think we're all very glad that it's in the rear mirror, but it was a much more fundamental impact on us as a country and you know as a human race more broadly than we perhaps give credit for. And so the ideas being discussed today in terms of you know putting in sort of pamphlets into cigarettes and so on where people can get help to quit smoking and so on, those small nudges can make quite a big difference is that something you've noticed Anoush because your work you know you go around the country looking at the impact of government decisions and covid and other big shocks on our public services in the public realm have you you noticed a sort of difference the difference Jimmy you're describing there post-covid in the state of our high streets the state of our public services what people who work in the NHS are are saying about covid uh, about the sort of the state of things? Yes, definitely. I think there's been a big shift since COVID in terms of we did have some of these problems before. So cancer targets haven't been hit for a while. And we've got some of the worst survival rates actually out of comparable countries. And we have done for a while since before the pandemic. But since then, the goodwill of the people running these services has run out. You know, they they worked so hard during the pandemic, they feel that they haven't had the thanks for it. And that's why, you know, we're on our fifth round of junior doctor strikes, for example. So I think the way that people who are working in these services are talking about it is very different. Uh, let's talk about another public service then. Let's talk about schools. It's obviously A-level results week. Uh, and there's an interesting story on the front page of this morning's Times uh, about A-level sociology. Uh, Jimmy, what A-levels did you do? I did economics, history and English. Uh, what's your bit, Anoush? I did English, history and Spanish. Wow. I mean, not us, you know, we're really... Uh, <laughs> really I, I diverse. Did, yeah, exactly. I did English, history and uh, and classical civilization. So there you go. Uh, you know, t- three top sciences here. Uh, <laughs> none, of us did, none of us did sociology, though, I, I note from that, which is now... Uh, outstripping a number of traditional subjects at A-level because of a booming interest from teenagers in activism and social 
issues. That's on the front page of this morning's Times. In the yesterday's Sunday Times, there's a really interesting piece, uh, which you can still get on the Times website, on the decline of modern languages A-levels, in particular German, which has really plummeted in the past 10 years. Jimmy, you think a lot about skills and the modern workplace. What do you think is driving this sort of changing taste in the qualifications kids take up? And also, what does it mean for, for, as you would say, the jobs of the future? Well, I think that we study things at A-level that we like doing and therefore are passionate about. And I think that's why you're seeing sociology increase because people are taking more interest in the world around them. They have much more information fed to them about the world. I often think about you know Live Aid and Live Eight when we were at sort of university and so on. And that was a real shot into the window of a different world almost. And now these kids have the all that information to them the whole time. So they're much more interested in what's happening in and around them. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the kind of increase in sociology. I slightly worry about it in terms of they are quite, I think often it's talked about hard and soft skills, whereas actually a better phrase is sort of durable and perishable skills. And the challenge with sociology is that it can be out of date quite quickly as the mo- as the world moves on at a rapid rate. And so that can be a challenge doing it at A-level, that actually it can end up being out of date quite quickly. Whereas with languages and the sciences, they are much more durable skills. They are going to stand the test of time much more. Now, I don't know if that's really being put across to students, really, when they're making these decisions. You know, schools aren't great at careers advice, and nor should they be necessarily. You know, that's not their sort of skill set as the world becomes more um, proliferated and there are more jobs out there than ever before. It's even harder for schools to do it. So I do worry about it slightly in terms of the amount that it seems to be increasing. But there are also, you know, in fairness, there are increases in maths, chemistry and biology as well that the report shows this morning. So there's there's cause for optimism too. Yeah, it's interesting. And that may well be a consequence of students being told you need to study something that will get you a job, right? And the scientists very much in the, are in that sort of ballpark. Interesting, we've got an anonymous texter uh, who's just written in saying, easy option, which is cryptic. I assume they're talking about A-level sociology and not the topic of discussion or the columnists uh, we've booked on today's show, I hope. <laughs> if you want to clarify, do get back in touch. Text times to 8722. Uh, Anoush, do you want to defend the honour of A-level sociology or do you agree with Jimmy? To be honest, I haven't done A-level sociology, so I don't know how great it is, but I would caution at being too worried about this trend. I mean, look at okay, look at the course PPE at Oxford. When that was introduced in the 20s, that was seen as a lightweight option for dilettantes right by the people who did the more traditional subjects Mm. there's no reason why sociology might not become a prestigious subject at some point look at the people who studied PPE they end up running the country so you know um, trends do come through in education and we have to move with the time so I don't necessarily think that it's a bad option or an easy option it might be that it just applies more to students day-to-day lives as they see it and speaking of students oh sorry go on Jimmy Well, I was just going to say that sometimes we can't be aware of what employers want as well. So we Mm. recently had the chief executive of Football Manager on the Jimmy's Jobs of the Future podcast. They employ 300 people in East London now. And actually, he was saying that it's quite short of people that can kind of create a narrative um, and a story narrative and, and English being one of the key skills, which for a video game, you might not think as a kind of 
key attribute but i was really struck by that and sometimes we're just not aware of what employers skills require obviously we had a texter earlier an anonymous texter perhaps wisely anonymous giving the reaction who called a level sociology an easy option uh, to which david on the text says unless your texter is actually studying for or teaching a levels as you said before anush Kelly for the new statesman i don't know how they can say sociology is an easy option they can't know either way and huffy of hove gets in touch to say citing ppe as a totem for the future of sociology sociology is hardly a ringy endorsement giving Cameron and Boris's track record uh, so there you go uh, any comment on Anish Chikalian? Fair enough Fair enough yep. <laughs> Fair enough uh, yeah not a great advertisement some would say for the future of uh, politics philosophy and economics that notorious degree uh, right let's talk about something some people might be too squeamish to talk about. The government has denied reports that it's planning to install a lavatory czar to address the fall in the number of public toilets, which have decreased by 60% over the last 12 years. It will, however, impose new rules on buildings open to the public, forcing them to have separate single-sex toilets to curb the rise of gender-neutral loos. A lot going on in this story. Let's see if we can decode it with Raymond Martin, director at the British Toilets Association. Raymond, what a job title you have. Thank you so much, Babbage. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but in a sentence, why have we lost so many public loos in the past decade? Because there is no legislation in this country and never has been from uh, led down by government on public toilets. All responsibilities put on to local authorities to decide uh, how many they want, where they want them and how they're going to run them. Uh, and uh, in 2011, the government took 20% of all the council budgets because they knew Brexit and HS2 and things were coming along. So they were just all the money going to councils and therefore public toilets took a hammering and made a, 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 a sharp decline in the number that we've had, down to 50% or more. You must have had a roller coaster day yesterday. Reports in the Sunday Telegraph that the government was planning to install a lavatory czar. They're now denying that. Could you do with a lavatory czar? I suppose you are the lavatory czar. <laughs> to, some, to some degree, I'm the one, the one who's fighting on, on, on behalf of everybody. Um, You're the lavatory's yeah. Lenin, not the czar. <laughs> Lenin. The, uh, well, they, they put into the recycling regeneration bill in clause 57 to 59, whatever they were going to uh, put a toilet commissioner in place to look at the gaps and, and to, to work with the councils to find out what the problems were and at least understand what the problems are. We're, you know, we, we can understand that they're, they're backing away, trying to say we haven't got the money and we, you know, we, we don't uh, think this is our responsibility because that's what they've done for 40 years. But actually, they did put down the the they did come up with a concept of putting someone into place, working with independents like the BTA and many other toileteers, as we call ourselves, uh, to <laughs> try and find and, and address the problems. Um, there'll be people who say, "Look, in the meantime, you know, clearly this isn't going to change overnight. Even if the government does have a change of heart on this on this subject, in the meantime, what's the answer? Is it, you know, shops being forced to open their their lose to?" to shoppers is it for instance you know pubs not requiring people to buy a drink that sort of thing uh, no not really i mean retailers have their own uh, responsibilities that they have got to use their retail space to sell and make profits and can and continue to run their business or whatever then opening their toilets is a is a lovely thing um but really um you've got to realize the toilets is as a human species, we have to eat, sleep, drink, breathe, and go to the toilet. So going to the toilet is one of the major things we have to do. And the government has a responsibility from a health point of view 
because uh, toilets are about health and well-being. They're about social inclusion, communities, whatever. They're about disabled people or people with accessibility issues. And they're about public dignity and public decency. So these, uh, the responsibility should come back onto local, uh, onto the government itself to take uh, some sort of stand on this issue, put money into the issue, obviously, um, but make sure that there, are, there is provision for public toilets because retail shops as well only open between nine and five. We need toilets from five or six o'clock in the morning for delivery drivers and lorry drivers and people out park running and walking, whatever. We need toilets in the evening for the nighttime economy and for people going out and about and enjoying the many beauties of this country. So having just retail toilets is not the answer to uh, the solution is having proper public toilets, decent, hygienically clean ones in, in, in place. And should they be free, Raymond Martin, because... You know, in, in today's sort of, we're speaking a lot today actually about cashless society and, you know, spending a penny, that old euphemism, that was that was the price once. I remember, you know, growing up, the public toilets on Lord Street on South, in Southport were 20 pence. But, you know, these days, even though there are public toilets, people might not have the change on them. So how do you square that circle? Um, well, literally everybody's using credit card these days and more and more toilets up and down the country that are in operation are changing over to card readers. Uh, or some are using tokens and coins or maybe even keypads. You go in and buy some of these uh, uh, coffee shops and they'll give you a code and you go and put your code in and use the toilet. Um, so we're moving away, but the free, day of the free toilet, I think, is gone. It would be lovely to think the government was going to put billions and squillions into uh, providing public toilets up and down the country free of charge because it's a human right of ours. Uh, but that's not going to happen, as you say, Patrick. So we, we believe it costs money to run these toilets. There's lighting, electric, heating, water, uh, running costs, repair, replacement, whatever. So um, we really do believe that, that, that people are going to have to pay to use public toilets. What that what that levels out at 20p, 50p a pound, whatever it is, uh, that's going to be up to the individual authorities, whatever to do. But there is a cost behind them, and that cost has to be recovered. Well, Raymond Martin, Director of the British Toilets Association, thanks very much for joining us. Listening to that were Anoush Chikalian and Jimmy McLaughlin. Uh, Anoush, as I was saying earlier, you travel the length, length and breadth of the com- uh, country reporting for the New Statesman. This is an issue you've encountered before? Yeah, it definitely is. It's it's just another example of how many services councils have been forced to cut since their budgets were reduced, as Raymond was was laying out there. You know, libraries, local bus services, children's centres. I've seen it all. Public toilets is a really big one. Um, it's, it is a human right. I also think it's a sort of symptom of the health of a society, isn't it? Are you able to use the loo freely and easily when you're out and about uh, or not? And, and the fact that you can't is actually quite sad. You know, it shows that sort of society's, I don't know, crumbling slightly in terms of it. It's basic, basic amenities. Uh, and Jimmy, this is the sort of policy that literally it's hard to imagine a more unglamorous policy than this. Uh, but as Anoush is saying, it's it's pretty important as to the things that voters actually care about, i.e. the fabric of their high streets, you know, the sort of sense of municipal pride, you know, people doing their business down alleyways, etc., etc. You know, it's the sort of thing that does come back to bite a government in the end. Uh Yes, it is. But I don't think you know, we sort of can look back to sort of golden age of public toilets <laughs> yeah, indeed, necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you know, sort of the, the Victoria Wood joke, which is very well known about sort of dating men and so on, springs to mind as, you know, this is not something, this is not a new problem. I actually think what you were talking there about the cashless society is quite a good thing because sometimes you know you go you haven't got the right change and you know or you need to get a token it's all quite complicated. And, and you know, when you need to go, you need to go, right? And so actually, you know, as the father of 
small children now as well like i think it is quite important to sort of simplify the the friction process that happens that was anoush chikalian and jimmy mclaughlin remember you can read our whole range of columnists on the times website just get yourself a subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time to talk political denials. 25 years on from Bill Clinton admitting his affair with Monica Lewinsky. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, where were you in January 1998? That was when an American blogger called Matt Drudge reported a story that would cause chaos in American politics and nearly bring down a president. Bill Clinton was alleged to have have had an affair with a White House intern called Monica Lewinsky. Just a week later, the president made one of the most infamous denials in political history. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. But the story didn't disappear, of course, and an investigation began to uncover the truth. Eight months later, 25 years ago this week, Clinton came clean. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Damien Whitworth, now a Times feature writer, was the Times' Washington correspondent at the height of the scandal and remembers the chaos that swept through the USA that year. I asked him when he first heard that name, Monica Lewinsky. I can remember when that story broke, and it was Matt Drudge who who broke it, and the, the, the incredible excitement. I was still in London at that stage, and we were all following it absolutely agog those first few months. And I arrived in the summer of 1998 uh, when the investigation was sort of in full sort of flow, and the, and we were just reaching the sort of crescendo. And so I was there in that summer, and I can remember arriving, and the day I arrived in Washington got taken to some party which was full of sort of Clinton and Gore people and aides who were just, you know, losing their minds. You know, it's like this hot summer and the, it, this feverish atmosphere there. And they were all sort of terrified. What's going to happen? And the, it seems in retrospect, you know, remember when Clinton survived this, it's very hard to get rid of a president, you know, to impeach and get rid of a president as we've seen in the last few years. But there was felt like real jeopardy for Clinton that, that summer because there's this drip, drip, drip of these salacious stories. And if his own party had turned against him and if the public, more importantly, had turned against him and then his party, you know, he could have been in real trouble. And um, no one knew what was going to happen. And there were all these you know, thousands of people who worked for Clinton were terrified they were going to lose their jobs. Now, every presidential scandal, the, the reporters who were there say, there's never been anything like this. And of course, we'd had Watergate before. And, uh, but it was an extraordinary story to cover. Especially to arrive as Washington correspondent for The Times into the thick of that. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was a, quite a steep learning curve, you know, immersing yourself in it and becoming a sort of Lewinskyologist as we did, you know, pouring over every detail 
what was amazing was there were these constant leaks of what was happening inside the investigation. So there were all these stories about the, the fabled blue dress. Because Clinton, of course, had denied, you know, there'd been any relationship. And do you remember there was a, his passing of the language so that he said, you know, that there had not been a sexual relationship in his, in his definition of what a sexual relationship was. And then the famous phrase, it depends on what the definition yeah. of the word is, is, is. Yes, you know, the real loyally language. But then this, this dress was rumoured, uh, rumoured, and then she handed it over to the FBI, and and there was there was the evidence. Um, mm. Years later, I interviewed Bob Bittman, who was one of Ken Starr's lawyers doing the investigation, and he was the one who had the um, unenviable but perhaps career-enhancing job of uh, interviewing Clinton during that investigation. It was taped, and we later saw the recording. Um, about what had happened. And he had to ask these very straightforward questions. Can you explain the presence of your semen on the dress? So that it, the dress, after all that talking and all that language that uh, uh, Clinton had come out with, he couldn't really get away with it anymore. They had this dress and they had the evidence that there had been this relationship. And that's what everybody remembers, mm. the that iconic line from Clinton, mm. endlessly quoted since I did not have sexual relations yeah. with that woman. But as you're explaining very evocatively everything the drip 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 that happened subsequently revealed that to be very <laughs> a very well, tenuous relationship with the truth yes and i remember there were some sort of studies later and uh, that university students in america you know didn't regard um oral sex as sex because of what clinton had had had, had said but yeah there was there was no getting away from it and when we got i remember when the star report came out obviously we had the internet then and we this is quite ancient history but 1998 wasn't they weren't sort of putting everything up straight away onto the uh, onto the internet the star report was delivered in that, I think it was in the September when he'd concluded all his investigations. And it came in these, as a main report, and then these huge slabs, I've still got them somewhere at home, of these great thick books of, of the appendices of it. And it was, we had to pour through it. And there's all this detail about the relationships and encounters in the open, this little windowless area just off the Oval Office. Cigars, we may not go into the details of what that was involved with those. Now, it was extraordinary, the sort of level of detail they'd gone into. And I know Ken Starr, perhaps rather unfairly, was sort of cast as this sort of witchfinder general who was obsessed with, with sex, but they did a really very thorough job on investigating it. And in the end, that did for the Republicans who were you know, investigating, who spearheaded all this, because the public decided in, in, back then, you know, he, he was lying, Clinton, yeah, but he was lying about sex. Doesn't everyone lie about sex? And in the end, it sort of came down to that because you didn't get that the public outcry t- that was going to persuade the Democratic senators to switch and go with and go join Republicans in convicting him in the Senate. So he was never, he, once the trial started, they, they turned against him. And the Republicans were very badly hit in the, in the midterm elections because they, they'd spearheaded yeah, all it's that. Yeah, it's not necessarily like Nixon, which was hmm. allegations of criminality right it's a it's as you say a different kettle of fish and slightly more ambiguous how quickly did it become obvious that clinton's denial or what looked like a denial was not all that it seemed well it took quite a long time didn't it because they had to you know that story broke in january and it and then it it dragged on all that autumn until december i think the trial was in the january of of the next year by which stage we knew that he was his presidency was safe safe but his reputation um obviously somewhat damaged. And the effect, many would argue, on the Democrats was that you know, Al Gore was lost the election very narrowly and George W. Bush had pledged to restore dignity to the White House. How, how, how much that affected Gore? I mean, 
historians will pick over that for years, but history could have been very different. It could have been. So do you think Clinton could get away with not only the Lewinsky affair itself, obviously attitudes have changed quite dramatically to abuses of power, as we call them now, in the past 25 Mm. years, but with the way he handled the fallout, the non-denial, the, as you said earlier, passing the denial, playing with language, much harder to do that given the shift in social attitudes and changes in the media now, isn't it? I I think so. It's such an intriguing question, that, isn't it? Because... In the post-Me Too world, could you really get away with having an affair with an intern, you know, that power dynamic close to the Oval Office, um, and then try and get people to lie about it? It seems hard to think that you could get away with that now, doesn't it? Mm. I think, And I think a lot of those liberal Democrats who backed Clinton, who were determined that the pre- a Democratic president would be saved... What about his wife, you know, Hillary Clinton? Would, would she have felt in a position to stand by him in the post-Me Too world? That's, that's very intriguing. I mean, we look at Trump, I suppose, you know, he's had his own sexual scandals and has somehow survived that in the in the Me Too world. I guess those were sort of more historical, weren't they? And it wasn't anything he'd done in the... It wasn't happening in the White House. Although, although you know, Republicans did exhibit sort of very intense partisanship towards Trump, and maybe that's the other factor at play here, the polarisation of American yeah. democracy. Yeah, and you've got to remember also, I mean, Clinton at the time, the economy was good, people wanted to keep, keep him there, they didn't want, it to, they didn't want to lose their Democratic president. And also, you've got to remember there were other women. There were, mm. this, this all grew out of a sec, another sexual harassment case, and there were other... Stories about Clinton's behaviour with women, and I don't, I'm not sure he would have survived that. And also, much harder now, given how easy it is to contradict a politician who is being perhaps economical with the truth through digital media, etc., for a politician to get up and say something that is close to a falsehood and get away with it for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think they'd have been all over. I mean, but the media were on him on that, but in a way. It's quite hard because Clinton sort of defined that era and, mm. and he sort of created that that slipperiness. He was called Slick Willie, wasn't he? You know, because he was, if we had him now, would we have had somebody beforehand that we would be looking back to and saying, you know, oh, you can't act like that anymore. I mean, he sort of created that slipperiness, didn't he? That, that cleverness, that legalese. I'm joined now by an expert paddle who knows a thing or two about political denials. In the studio with me, Isabel Hardman art political commentator. Hello, Isabel. Hello. Andrew Jimson, former parliamentary sketch writer and author of the Boris Johnson biography, uh, The Rise and Fall of Troublemaker, in number 10. Hello, Andrew. Hello, hello. And Gitto Harry, who was Boris Johnson's Director of Communications. Hello, Gitto. How are you? Very well. Great to have you. Look, since we've got two Boris Johnson experts, we ah. may as well start uh, <laughs> with the man himself. And a denial that really dominated the past 18 months in British politics. I think we'll all remember this one. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. Uh, Gitto, I'll start with you. What do you make of that one? What makes one, I should start, what makes a good denial? Was Boris Johnson good at giving denials? And your assessment of that one? Well, I think with that one, he genuinely uh, thought at the time and still believes to this day that what he was attending was something that was in the rules for him as the Prime Minister in his residency of number 10 with work colleagues, uh, and that whether alcohol was served or not was neither here nor there. And that's largely what the police uh, decided as well, because there was only one occasion when they decided uh, that there was a breach of the rules, and that was on a technicality about somebody being present 
who is not entitled to be there. So it's not as clean cut as, you know, his detractors have made out that, that, that for that specific one. Um, but in general, with, with a sort of denial, um, it, it's one of those where ideally you want people to be straight, but when there is something that you can't, and sometimes you can't be completely honest, you know, has so-and-so resigned? Well, until the paperwork is done, you can't confirm that. Is the pound going to be devalued tomorrow or interest rates going to go up? There are people privy to all kinds of information they cannot share, and they try not to sort of say the opposite of the truth but what you then tend to do is to sort of divert and distract and and, and cloud the issue and, and 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 filibuster and move on and the most effective way of doing that i think is to use a tone that implies great clarity i can tell you hand on heart staring you in the eye all that kind of stuff absolutely nothing so the difference is between the tone and the content in the end and that's that's what the clever guys uh, and, and and women do when they do it it's uh, deeply cynical maybe but that's when it works best well as a close observer of Boris Johnson denials over the years Andrew Gibson what do you make of that well he made a hash of it um he he, he made a hash in in 2004 when he said that accusations that he had an affair were an inverted pyramid of piffle um, uh, and here he made a, a hash of it in a, in a different way. It just doesn't sound convincing the way he does it. It didn't convince the public. It didn't convince the press. Uh, and it didn't sort of put the thing to bed. Very, very, very difficult task. I, I think, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, he should have made some partial admission, which I know is very dangerous. But somehow what, he's, what, what we've just heard sounded too categorical um, to be believed by a very large number of people who, for quite different reasons, were determined in any case to assassinate him. But it sounds, Gitto, if you have someone who, as you say, Boris Johnson, convinced he was on the right side of the rules, it's probably quite easy as a spinner to be with someone who is you know, absolutely convinced they've done the right thing because, as you say, they can just give a very straight and unambiguous, uh, unambiguous answer. It doesn't actually take a, a lot of advice if Boris Johnson was convinced that he had done the right thing. Well, no, I think what happened on this occasion, um, without drowning in, in, in the whole thing and revisiting it, is, uh, you know, the the impression his denial gave was not that not only that he had not broken the rules, but that the rules were not broken in number 10. Now, that turned out patently not to be true. There are all kinds of things going on that the police did find a lot of people, uh, some of them multiple fines for. Some of them were the people who were uh, perpetuating the, you know, attention drawn to party gates. So it turned out that he, that this is where he would say that he was essentially misinformed. Um, and I think, uh, like Andrew suggests, had he... Uh, asked more questions or had he you know been more properly protected by the people who are meant to look after him uh, in that kind of role and they said you know what you cannot say that because it will turn out that there are things that went on that you weren't aware of uh, and it won't hold uh, and if you do that you're going to end up in a whole pile of trouble which which he did so if he had sort of said look as I understand it Everything I attended was was a work event that I was entitled, indeed, duty bound to do it. But I will look into this because, you know, it's a serious accusation and we will we will find out if anyone else was. That would have been that would have been a far better outcome. The more categorical you are, the less space you give yourself uh, uh, to sort of, you know, give a different version down the line and the less less scope there is for forgive and forget from your detractors. Yeah. Isabel, being categorical on the basis of partial information or you know, not anticipating that things might come out later, the Clinton clip we've been playing this morning, 
very unambiguous, that famous Bill Clinton clip. Another example of, as Gitto says, if you're categorical, you leave mm. yourself no room for manoeuvre. And Boris Johnson was categorical in that clip we heard. Yeah, and I think there's three types of denial. I think there's the, the outright lie denial when you know you're lying and you are too categorical. Uh, and we did end up in this position towards, in the sort of final few days of Boris Johnson's premiership, where at one of the lobby briefings with the Prime Minister's official spokesman, a journalist said, are you going to tell us the truth today? Now, that is not the normal opener to a briefing between journalists and spokespeople. Despite the stereotypes outside of politics, actually lying is still reasonably taboo within politics. I think it's become a bit less in the last few years. Then there's the in-denial denial, where, as Guto referred to, you might actually think you've done nothing wrong or you've got yourself into this weird psychological position where you think you're not having an affair when you manifestly are or you know whatever the weird gymnastics that people can end up in uh, when they're in these situations. And then there's what we're more used to, which is is the non-denial denial. And that's the, you know, you, and I was caught out by this early in my career. When I would go to special advisors, press officers, and I'd say, I have heard that this thing happened. There was, for instance, an argument on a plane and a minister refused to get off until the prime minister had signed something off. This was this is an approximation of something that actually happened. And they'd say, oh, I've not heard that. <laughs> and... Uh, I think, oh, well, it didn't happen then. Mm. Actually, you have all this, these really clever little ways of not saying that it definitely didn't happen, but saying that that particular person, that particular press officer, wasn't in the room when the, you know, the printer got thrown at someone. So, therefore, it, you know, it wasn't seen. I have not seen that. I've not heard that. I'm not aware of that. Yeah, it's actually quite rare in journalism that you get a straightforward answer. That is not true. Mm. You know what I mean? It's more mm. often that you're sort of onto something and there's, a, mm. as you say, little semantic tricks. Mm. Um, given that, you know, Isabel, I, I should let Gitto come back. Obviously, Gitto, you weren't the Prime Minister's official spokesman. You were uh, Boris Johnson's Director of Communications. But what would you say to Isabel's, the point Isabel raised incidentally there about, you know, outright lying? Was that something you recognised in Boris Johnson's number 10? Or I expect you would say that's something you never did. No, the prime minister's, you know, I, I take the view, uh, and, and this is from two decades in journalism, that, you know, you, uh, you can only lie once and then you lose your credibility. And when I crossed the line to become, a, you know, a communications person, initially for Boris when he was mayor of London, I took the same view. I could only lie once and then my credibility would be shot. I'd be useless in that role. So Isabel's right that... You know, you, 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 when there are occasions when you cannot be straight, more often than not, for noble reasons, you've got to find another way of just, you know, I don't know, diffusing it, making it go away. There was one occasion when I knew that I couldn't answer the phone to any of the journals that I knew well, because if I answered the phone, I would not be able to not tell them something they were desperate uh, to know, but I wasn't at liberty to share because of personal HRE kind of stuff that was going on. So I, I, I think people tried to be on. What happened with the whole Chris Pincher affair was the level of criminology was off the charts, but, you know, there were there were people answering different questions and referring to different times, and and it, you know, there were, there, there were things that appeared, you know, days after people in number 10 had said there is no record of the Prime Minister to being told this at all turned out it was a verbal record you know you will drown in the criminology of that mm. but the prime minister spokesman at the time was not trying to lie to the press and as i understand it he's still in post and you know still giving briefings every day and i certainly take the view that you have to be as straight as you can with people and um, and and the hardest thing sometimes is is actually telling the truth um in the face of you know a sort of narrative that is very very entrenched 
And I suppose another way of doing this is to ensure that people are kept within silos. So you could ask the Prime Minister's official spokesman something that they haven't been party to. So they're not, they've not been party to those discussions. They haven't had that discussion with the Prime Minister. They don't actually know about that. And this is a tactic that's often used in the run-up to general elections, where particularly actually with leaders who don't trust their own mouths. I mean, David Cameron, for instance, didn't want to be taken anywhere near the coalition negotiations because he was worried that he'd accidentally talk about them <laughs> during the 2010 election campaign. And so you keep people apart from things. So if they're asked about it, they literally don't know anything about it. Well, let's hear from Keir Starmer now. Uh, well, as I've explained a number of times, we were working in the office. We stopped for something to eat. No party, no breach of the rules. The police obviously have got their job to do. We should let them get on with it. But I'm confident that no rules were broken. What is the difference between what you did and what Boris Johnson did when he had the event he's been fined for already, his, the birthday party? Well, I was working... I stopped for something to eat, no party, no breach of the rules. Obviously, I understand the police uh, need to do their job. Gitto was mentioning tone earlier, Andrew Jimson, and Keir Starmer's tone here, pretty defensive, I'd say. You know, you don't listen to that and say this is a man who's really confident that he's going to come out of this one alive, which he did in the end, but it was, you know, when he was talking about that curry he had in County Durham, it wasn't immediately clear what was going to happen. His general tone of voice is rather pious and self-righteous. Uh, there, one heard more the careful lawyer who, was, who absolutely understands about rules of evidence and all that and, and was very, very anxious not to incriminate himself. Well, 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 but skating across quite thin ice because obviously a lot of people would have, would have thought from the photograph that palpably it was a party and not a sort of work event. Did you find uh, Keir Starmer a convincing performance in moments like this when you were in number 10 Gitter? And no, I think there, you know, that was very slippery indeed. Um, and you know, he was not at home in his place of work and his place of residence. Uh, he was away from home with people he did not work with all the time, and he was frankly very, very lucky to get away with not having a uh, penalty notice from from the police. Um, you know, the current prime minister has a penalty notice, and he's teetotal. You know, it's it's a mad turn of events that uh, that you know one police force can find the chance of the exchequer for turning up early for a meeting where technically one person in the room is not entitled to be there and Keir Starmer can be you know drinking beer and eating curry with with a whole bunch of people he's probably never met since and never met before as well as his close colleagues you know a long way from home so you know in the end you've got to decide whether these things matter or not and you know I, the sad thing for me is that we all became completely obsessed with something that was neither here nor there in the great big challenges facing uh, the United Kingdom at the moment. And I recently gave a lecture on David Lloyd George, a man who uh, laid the foundations of the welfare state, brought sort of relative peace to Ireland and helped us win the First World War. If he had been alive in this climate, he would have been absolutely destroyed uh, by our current preoccupations because he had a mistress installed in number 10. He sold peerages. He profited from, you know, share sales uh, with insider dealing, essentially. I mean, he was off the charts in terms of bad behaviour and, dare I say, corruption. And yet one of the best prime ministers Britain has ever had. I'd actually argue he's the best. So you've got to in the end. And I think we as, you know, as commentators, as journalists, as people, as voters have got to decide, are we really setting up our leaders for sainthood 
or are we going to judge them on what did they say they would do? And this is where, controversial these days, but this is where I've always thought that Boris Johnson is a politician of great integrity because he's well let's you know we, we've we've discussed boris at some length already let's just rattle through a couple more denials and talk about what makes them convincing or otherwise i think we've you know we've uh, we've reached our conclusion on boris let's isabel was talking about non-denial denials earlier let's hear one if you foresee no circumstances, that leaves open the option that there could be such circumstances. However, if you said there were no, no circumstances whatsoever, you, there are you, no circumstances, no, you, you would you, clear it up completely, no, which you, is what you want to do. I have made my position absolutely clear, and it is a satisfactory position, but British people, they understand what I'm saying. Isabel, classic non-denial denial, talking about that clever use of semantics earlier. Yeah, also just, I've been very clear. I mean, it's like an injection of caffeine into a journalist who thinks you haven't been clear and I'm going to pursue you even further. I mean, I think also just, you know... We should say, by the way, that was Michael Heseltine denying the worst-kept secret ever that he wanted to be Prime Minister and challenge (laughs) Mrs Thatcher. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I think in terms of sort of, you know, keeping information about what somebody's up to, just to Guto's previous point... My personal view, and obviously I'm saying this as a journalist, is that I personally think that the public deserve to make the informed decision on the character of their leaders. And it's not actually a good thing that we've previously had ages of deference where misbehaviour and actually extremely dodgy dealings have just been considered as part of the package of being a good prime minister. Perhaps they are. But I think that should be presented to the public for them to make their decision. Yes, the House of Commons in the end decides. And and, and there's a very bad tendency in recent years to try and reduce this all to whether or not you broke the rules. These are questions of political judgment, whether you're going to go on backing. I mean, I completely agree with Gitto that Lloyd George, the greatest Welshman since the Tudors, but um, he he went, of course, because Stanley Baldwin and other Conservatives got completely fed up with him and thought that he was he was contaminating everyone with whom he came into contact, that he'd be needed during the war, but he was a hopeless uh, and, and morally depraved um, peacetime Prime Minister. And so out he went. And that's the decision eventually is taken in our system by the House of Commons. Of course, Clinton lasted for eight years because they have fixed terms over there. A much worse system, in my opinion. Uh, right, we, I think we've just got time for one, one more. Very quick denial. We were talking about brazen lies earlier. Here is perhaps the most famous one of them all from Jonathan Aitken. If it now falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in our country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of traditional British fair play, so be it. Uh, and Gitto, as you were saying earlier, you can only lie once. And uh, that was quite the lie <laughs> for Jonathan Aitken, who later ended up uh, in prison for perjury and perverting the course of justice to go out on. Yeah, and then discovered God and, you know, is that a whole, you know, damn conversion. He's a very different character mm. these days from that. But that was that was such a, you know, clever denial to the extent of playing to the gallery and eliciting sort of sympathy and support. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I was a journalist at the time. It's quite demoralizing. You think, do you know what? If he can say it with that conviction, mm. I'm not going to waste any more of my time digging. But thankfully, people did. And credit to journalists who persevere with these things. And it turned out that, you know, convincing and emotionally compelling though it was, it was a blatant lie and he went to prison for it. Indeed, Jonathan Aitken's dodgy dealings with Saudi Arabian businessmen were not all he said. Final word from you, Isabel Harmon? I think there's also something psychological here, which is that politicians are risk takers and they can actually end up in a place where they enjoy these kind of risks like Jonathan Aitken took. 
So there you go. That is how you deny in politics, or indeed don't. You heard from Gitto Harry, Boris Johnson's former spokesman, Andrew Jimson, Boris Johnson's biographer, and Isabel Hardman, our political commentator. That's all we got time for today, so make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. 